you are new or visiting and you've been welcomed several times by now, I hope, and I just want to give you one more greeting. Um, I'm so glad that you're here. My name is Chad Kinser. I serve as our congregational lead pastor here at Frontline Downtown, and it's a privilege to get to share God's Word with you today. If you've got a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Today we're kicking off our Advent series. You've been hearing Advent all morning long. Uh, we're kicking off our Advent series, and so starting today... And really through uh, Christmas Eve, we're going to be working through the first two chapters of the book of Luke. This is the most famous passage of scripture when it comes to this Christmas story. If you've watched Charlie Brown Christmas, this is what Charlie Brown reads, right? So if Charlie Brown's reading it, you know it's really popular. Uh, So this is what's going on in the first two chapters of Luke. And so if you're new to church or you're new to this term Advent, let me kind of tell you what we're meaning we throw this term around all the time. This is a term that the church has used uh, throughout history to kind of reference what we celebrate as Christians this time of year. It's a Latin term that simply means coming or arrival. We're talking about the coming of our Lord Jesus and his birth, right? We're talking about the fact that God sent his son. His son arrived to save us from our sins and bring us back to God. That's what the term Advent means. That's what we talk about our Advent series. We're celebrating the coming of Jesus. And so as we kick this thing off today, uh, we're going to be talking about in the passage of Luke, we're looking at the Annunciation, what's known as the Annunciation. Simply speaking, it's the announcement of the birth of Jesus. So we're not quite to the incarnation, right? That's coming as we move toward Christmas. We're talking about the Annunciation, the fact that Christ has been announced. His birth has been announced. So think of a birth announcement today. That's what we're talking about, the Annunciation of Jesus. So we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Luke 1, 26 through 38. The words will be on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible. But here's how I want to begin our time. I want to read this passage uh, in its entirety, and then I'll pray, and we'll go from there. So Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, the word of Jesus our King speaks like this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel went from, this, uh, went from God uh, to the city of Galilee of Naz- named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, for the Lord is with you. And she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and his name shall be called Jesus. And he will be great. He'll be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. And there will be a child, uh, therefore the child to be born shall be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son in the sixth month uh, with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, and let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray together. God, I pray today that you would have us now, that you would arrest our attention by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you would fill us with faith in the Lord Jesus. Jesus, I pray that you would speak through your scriptures. I pray that you would help me to make sense of what's going on in this passage. 
that you would do something unexpected among us today, I pray. Just like Christmas, just like what's going on in this passage, that you would surprise us and do something unexpected in us in the places where we have longing, in the places where we have pain, in the places where we have confusion. Would you, would you, would you show up today and bring clarity, bring relief, bring peace, God? Show us your son, Jesus. Have us in this moment. Your word, your word shapes your people. We pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, the Kinser home, my house, is a house that's always on the move. And there's almost always someone in my house who's crying. Almost always. So I've said to you before that my wife and I, we have four kids under the age of six. So we have a six-year-old, we have a four-year-old, we have a two-year-old, and we have a seven-month-old, right? So my house is always on the move, and there's almost always someone who's crying. We've even made the joke before that it seems like the ongoing soundtrack of the Kinser home is the, is the music of tears, you know? It's just kind of always present there all the time. And we don't even know how crazy sometimes it is until we go to someone else's house or we go to uh, some other space where all of a sudden the things that have become so normal to us in our house are shown for all they're crazy, right? And that happened this past week on Tuesday night. We were going to community group and uh, it was my job to get all of the family to community group because my wife was away getting her hair done and she's having some mom time and all that kind of stuff. So it was all on dad, get the kids to community group and get the kids home and back to bed. And so I showed up there at community group Tuesday night and we don't host, we're at someone else's house. So all the crazy was shown for all that it really is, right? And here's what happened. We're there no longer than 10 minutes. And I set, my, I set my seven-month-old down in his car seat, and I start getting dinner prepared for the rest, right? I set, I set out the food, and then right as I was setting out the food, my two-year-old starts running into the kitchen, and he tripped, and he fell forward, and he hit his head right on the corner of the bench of the kitchen table. And I grabbed him within seconds, and just as soon as I grabbed him, there was already a knot on his forehead, right? And so I'm, I'm holding him. He's, he's falling out in tears, and uh, I'm just trying to control the whole thing together. And everyone's kind of looking on at me, kind of going, wow, strong dad move, you know? And I'm like, hey, listen, I'm a split-second kind of guy, you know? And, and so we're there, and then right as I sit down with him and kind of have him almost consoled, my four-year-old runs in because she was having an argument with one of the other kids in the house about which, which toy was hers and which toy was theirs. And so she comes in falling out in tears. And so now I'm holding my two-year-old and my four-year-old. They're both just sobbing like crazy. And then as soon as I'm kind of getting them both kind of almost calmed down, still yet crying, and then my six-year-old comes in and she crawls up in my lap because the soup that I had set out for her for the dinner that night that everyone else was eating burned her tongue. She comes over just sobbing because her tongue has been burned. And this is happening in the first 10 minutes of being there. And I'm holding three of my, my oldest three children. They're crying all over me. And as soon as this happened, one of the other moms in the community group turned and she says, hey, real politely, she says, hey, could I get your youngest son, Asa, out of his car seat? He's crying. <laughs> and when she said that, I was just filled with embarrassment that number one, we we're there all the while. My son is still in his car seat and that he's crying and that I didn't hear it. Amidst all the other cries all around me, and amidst all the things that honestly, just in our home, all the cries, they just become so normal, you know? They just become so normal. And all of us have things like this, don't we? All of us have things like this, just things that become so normal, we're so accustomed to, they don't even really register to us anymore. They don't even really register to us. Maybe once they did, but they don't anymore. And so maybe the sound of crying isn't the thing that's become so familiar to you, but you have something like this. Maybe it's the rattle in your car. Every time you go over a bump, it's the way that your glove box begins to rattle and shake. And it used to annoy you, used to hear it, it used to bother you, but now you've just become so accustomed to the way it rattles over a bump that you, you don't even hear it anymore. 
Or, or maybe it's the sound of that, that warning beep that put, to put on your seatbelt, right? That you used to put it on right when you heard it, but then you got annoyed with that. And so you kind of let it just kind of go on and do its thing. And eventually you figured out if you wait about 10, 15 minutes, it would stop beeping. And so now you just kind of play that in the background and you don't even hear the beep anymore until someone else gets in your car and you're reminded, oh yeah, that's, that's the sign to put on your seatbelt, you know? Or, or maybe it's that inconveniently placed stop sign in your neighborhood that used to just bother you and used to stop and you don't know why. And now you, you ignore it and you just roll right on through it. All of us have things in life. You see what I mean? All of us have things in life that once we recognized them, once they registered to us, once they kind of bothered us or they, they drew us out in attention, but now we're just so accustomed, we're just so familiar, we don't even recognize it anymore. And the reason I bring this up this morning is because I think there's a, there's a way in which the Christmas story can become like that for us. I think there's a way in which the Christmas story can become like that for us where you, you've grown up and you've heard it so many times. You've been around Luke before. You've been around the first two chapters of Luke before. You've seen Charlie Brown. You, you've been around this before that now you're just no longer struck by the enormity of what's happening here. You're, you're just used to it. It's just sort of become like the background buzz of the Christmas process. We're going to read it at some point, but, but you're not really struck by the urgency or by the enormity of what's happening here in the first two chapters of Luke. And so as I read the passage this morning, can you still hear the baby crying in that manger? Can you still hear the baby crying in that manger, knowing that this cry changes everything? Even amidst all the other cries of this world that are always begging for your attention. Can you still hear the war cry of God breaking into the world through sending his son to put an end to Satan, to sin, and to death? Or as I read the passage, is this sort of showing up in your life a little bit like that warning, that warning beep for your seatbelt? Is it sort of showing up like that inconveniently placed stop sign that you notice, but you just really honestly roll right on by it? You see, here's the reality. The announcement of this birth and the cry of this child is unlike any other. The announcement of this birth in this passage and the cry of this child is unlike any other. It's the, it's the announcement and it's the cry of a king. It's the announcement and the cry of a king who changes everything. He has the power to change you and the power to keep changing us over time as we rehearse this announcement. So notice back in verses 32 and 33. Because look at what it says there. It says, he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him a throne of his father, David. and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Did you hear the language of royalty on repeat in this passage? At the end of 32, it says, the Lord God will give him a throne of his father, David. At the beginning of 33, it says he will reign over the house of Jacob. And then at the end of 33, it says of his kingdom, there will be no end. Throne, reign, kingdom. This is undoubtedly, unmistakably the announcement of a king. Jesus is king, right? Now, if we're honest, I say that to you this morning. And it sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds, it sounds warm. It sounds right. It sounds like what you would expect someone to say at church. It even sounds festive this time of year. Jesus is king. But I think if we're honest, it doesn't pack the punch for us that it's meant to, to hear that. It doesn't pack the punch for us that it's supposed to. And I think there's a few reasons for that. And I think one of them, 
I think one of them is because we're Americans. We're Midwesterners. We live in a democracy. We promote democracy. We love democracy. People have the voice. We don't know much about royalty and authority and monarchy. In fact, our nation's history is one where we left those kinds of things, right? And so as Americans, we leave the things of kings and kingdoms to things like pageants and British gossip columns and Disney movies, right? We save kings and kingdoms for playful things like homecoming and prom, things that really don't matter. And the prom queen in the room goes, no, it does matter. (laughs) It doesn't. It doesn't matter. Or we leave it to marketing slogans, right? Like the local Dairy Queen, and she's having a hard time staying in business. Or Budweiser, the king of beers. You see what I mean? We, we, we save the name, the notion of, of kings and kingdoms to playful things, but here's what's happening in Luke. It's not playful. It's real. Luke chapter one is calling us back to the reality of a king and a kingdom, a real king, a real kingdom that's not spiritual. It's not ethereal. It's not an idea. It's actual. It's actual. He has real authority. This announcement, this announcement pervades over all of life, over the entire cosmos. And so the question for us this morning is not whether or not, we're not debating, is Jesus a king? He absolutely is. But as we move forward in this passage, this, this, this passage is going to give us a couple of other questions to pursue. And, and here's how we're going to guide our time together. What kind of king is he? So he actually is a king, but what kind of king is he? And the second question we're going to pursue is who are his people? He, he is a king. What kind of king? And, and who gets a king like this? And then lastly, to end our time this morning, we're going to talk about, so what does this mean for us now? What, is, what kind of king is he? Who gets a king like this? And what does this mean for us now? And so if we look back at the passage for the first question, what kind of king is he? There's three words in this passage that are absolutely critical for you and I to get a hold of if we're going to understand the character of our king. And those three words are holy, son of God, and forever. Look back. Look back at verse 35. We get the first word. It says, the angel answered her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. So Jesus, what kind of king is he? He's a holy king. He is first a holy king. Now, the word holy is a word thrown around a lot in church without a lot of understanding, right? So here's what the word means. It means good. It means pure. It means without defect or blemish or fracture. Perfect, right? So Jesus is a holy king. And when we first think of God, the first thing that you ought to think of when you think about who God is at his core, the first thing that you ought to think of is the holiness of God. That's the first thing that ought to come to mind when you consider who is God. Because of all the things the Bible mentions about his, God's character, the only thing about God's character that's mentioned with emphatic repetition is his holiness. The Bible says God is holy, 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 right? In fact, this is the never-ending song of the angels. Revelation 4 says it this way. And the four creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within, day and night, they never cease to say, look what the angels never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So does the Bible say that God is love? Yes. Does the Bible say that God is good that God is forgiving, that God is merciful, that God is powerful, and on and on. The Bible says all of those things, but here's what the Bible is saying. 
in all the ways it mentions all the other characteristics of God, it doesn't mention them in the same way it mentions his holiness. In fact, you would say it this way. All the other traits of God, all the other aspects of God's character, they flow from this one trait, his holiness. So his love, God is love, but it's holy love. God is forgiving, but it's holy forgiveness. It's actual good without defect or blemish kind of forgiveness. It's the real kind of forgiveness. So God is good, but he's holy good. He's the real kind of good without fracture, perfectly pure goodness. And so God is powerful, but it's holy power. Not a power used to oppress or crush, but a power that's holy, that's always used to rescue and to save. And so this word holiness, to describe what kind of king is he, this is a hopeful word for us. This is a really hopeful word because this means that Jesus is a king unlike any other. So, so earthly powers, right? They seek to rule. They seek to rule by taking and by using and by self-promoting. But Jesus, Jesus rules and he reigns in power through his holiness to serve us and to give and to redeem and to restore. His holiness actually means good news for us. So the first word, the first thing Jesus is, what kind of king is he? He's a holy king. But the second word, the second word comes at the end of verse 35. It says he will be called holy, and here it is, the son of God. It also says this back up in 32. It says he will be great. He will be called son of the most high. So Jesus is holy, but he's also the son of God. This is the second word. And so this is, this is the wonder and this is the splendor of Jesus. This is the mystery of who Jesus is. That he's the God man, right? Fully God in him is fully God and perfectly man. All knit up into one. He is holiness wrapped in flesh. And so this is the thunder of Christmas. This is the thunder of Christmas that God in his son Jesus has closed the gap and he's joined us. Like it would have been enough for God to announce his love for us on high and just kind of, just kind of pilot it in somehow, you know, pipe it in somehow to us. But no, what God has done is he's joined us on ground zero. And he's revealed himself and made himself known to us as one of us. You consider that. Jesus, the son of God, God coming to us. This is a display of divine humility that when we hear this, it ought to cause us to gasp. Here's what I mean. Psalm 104 says that Jesus has been forever, has been forever clothed in splendor and in majesty, yet he humbled himself to be swaddled in cloth. That he's the giver of all life, and yet he humbled himself to be sustained and given life through a virgin's womb. That he is the one through whom all creation looks to for food and sustenance, yet he humbled himself. He humbled himself to be sustained and to be fed by Mary and Joseph when he couldn't feed himself. Jesus, the Son of God, God joining us. This is. This is unlike any other earthly power, right? Who would seek to rule his people from behind closed doors apart from his people, but not God, not the son of God. Jesus reigns not from a castle. That's not the kind of king he is. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. 
And so he is a holy king. That's the kind of king he is. He's the son of God, but there's also a third one here in verse 33. He's a forever king. The third word is he's a forever king. It says, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now this one's obvious, isn't it? That he's a forever king. Of course he is. He's the holy one. He's the son of God. And so of his kingdom, there will be no end at all. I love this, right? Because this means the universe, the universe isn't up for re-election. Like there's never going to be a successor on the throne of Jesus. That it's him there forever, absolutely, and it will never change. The universe isn't up for re-election. There's never going to be a successor on his throne. And this is the reason why, this is the reason why he can make a promise like I'll never leave you or forsake you. And it actually means something. Because his life is everlasting life and his kingdom will be no end. And he's a holy king. He's the son of God. He dwells with his people. He will never leave you or forsake you. Right? And this word packs a punch for us as we look back at Christmas on this side of the resurrection. Because his empty tomb proves these words. So how do you know he's a holy king? Because his tomb's empty. How do you know he's the son of God? Because his tomb's empty. How do you know he's a forever king? Because his tomb is empty. When you get up out of the ground, you don't go back in it. You're there forever in power and in holiness as the son of God whose kingdom has no end. And so he's a king unlike any other. He's a holy king. He's the son of God. He's a forever king. Which leads us to our second question. So who gets a king like this? Who, who, who are his people? Who gets a king like this? This is a special kind of king. Who gets a king like this? Well, Jesus, like any king, he has a people. And here's what I love. I, I've been looking forward to this part of the message all week long. Because he has a people, but they don't look like anything you would expect them to. They don't look like anything you would expect them to. For a king like this, his people just don't look like what you would expect. And I, I think we'll start just at the nativity scene, right? The, the, the way this passage plays out. So, so think about the characters that you, you think of most when you go to the nativity. We'll start with Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph. So here we have an unsuspecting couple, betrothed to be married, economically poor, from the backwoods town of Nazareth. We find out that Nazareth was a rural town with not a very good reputation. When Jesus stepped onto the scene for his earthly ministry in John 1:46, they asked the question, can anything even good come from Nazareth? And so the first people that Nativity starts with are an unsuspecting couple, an obscure couple who were poor from an obscure town in the middle of nowhere. And then moving out from there in this narrative, you have Mary's cousin Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah. And so Elizabeth was a barren woman. She, she was an old woman. She had a barren womb until the Holy Spirit had told her she was going to get pregnant with her son John. But that meant that she lived most of her life in shame because in those days, a barren woman was viewed as cursed of God and her life was a failure. She was mocked in her community. And her husband, Zechariah, was a a cynical, jaded old man because he had years of praying for a son that went unanswered. And even when God showed up to him through an angel, we find he didn't even believe him. And yet he was a priest serving in the service of God. And so the second couple in the story, you have one whose lives were viewed as a failure and they're recovering cynics and doubters. 
The story moves out from there to the shepherds, right? We typically think well of the shepherds with the songs we sing. But listen, the occupation of a shepherd in those days was a despised occupation. It was an occupation reserved for the undereducated, the undervalued in society. Hey, get out of the city and live a life in the wilderness and don't bother us. That's who shepherds were. And then you have the wise men. You have the wise men there at the nativity. And we typically think well of them because they came bearing gifts. They came to worship Jesus. If you roll open the Old Testament, you find out that the Magi is where we get the term magician, right? It's, these were pagan stargazers. These were occultist astronomers. They were hardly looking for the, for the God of the universe. The only reason they came is because they suspected when they saw that star in the east, there might be something to that. And then they were drawn out to worship. And so this is the nativity. <laughs> this is the nativity scene. It's hardly a group of people who have their lives together. Hardly at all. In fact, this is a group of people that you would think, why are they there? And then if you expand the story out from there and you see Jesus grow up and you look at all the people he spent his life with, he spent his life with drunks, gluttons, thieves, and the sexually immoral. That's who he spent his life with. These are the people of this king. And so when you think about Christmas this way, When you think about the Christmas announcement and the birth of this king, here's what Christmas means. It's the end of snobbery. It's the absolute end of snobbery, right? Because everyone wrapped up in this story, when you think about the people involved, they are the kind of people that if we're walking around, we're the kind of people who would have been talking about them as those people. And yet, if you listen to the story really close, you find out, oh, 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 we're those people. We're with them. This is why the, the prophet Luke, 700 years before Christ came, he prophesied about the birth of Jesus saying, for unto us, like all of us, for unto us a son is given. Like people from every track record, from every background, from every race, every socioeconomic status, from every, every background of history, for every those who have man-made religion, for unto us, for all of us, all the banged up and busted of all of us. For unto us, unto us collectively, a son has been given. A child has been born. And so Christmas, the birth announcement of Jesus, who who are his people? The birth announcement of Jesus means that God is for you. Can you hear that this morning? It means that God is for you and he's not against you. It means you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to have religious pretending because you can't. He already sees you. You've already been outed, but he has not sent his son to judge you. He sent his son to save you. He sent his son to save you. And so this king has a people. And they don't look like anything you would expect them to. But the good news is he's making them new. He's making them new and he's not leaving them the way he found them. So who is this king? He's holy. He's son of God. He's forever. Who are his people? Us. Busted as we may be, us. And so lastly this morning, what does this mean for us? What does this king mean for us? What does this announcement mean for us? Three quick things and we'll be done. First, it means repent. It means repent. You see, when you think about who this king is and you think about who he's come for, the birth announcement of Jesus means it demands a response. 
the birth announcement of Jesus demands a response. You don't walk away from this king neutral. You're either moving toward Jesus in trust or you're moving away from Jesus. And so hear this reality. Whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus or whether you're coming in today, you're not a Christian, you're just checking this whole thing out. He's a king with holy forgiveness. He is a king with holy forgiveness. Turn from your sins and trust Jesus. He's a king of holy goodness. He's a king of holy mercy. Turn to Jesus and receive a new identity. Listen, your past does not have to define you because those who turn to this king, the righteous reputation of this king now gets the final word over you. He gets the final word over you. Turn to this holy king, holy goodness, holy forgiveness, holy mercy. Repent. The second thing this king means for us is rejoice. The birth announcement of Jesus means a call to rejoice. Again, this means God is for you. He's not against you. He's not against you. And so I know that Christmas time brings up a host of emotions for all kinds of people. Like there are some of you here today and the Christmas season is really difficult this year and maybe over, over the course of several years because you remember the loss of a loved one every time. Or maybe the Christmas season is difficult for you because you're grieving family brokenness. Or maybe the Christmas season is difficult for you because when you think about your life, you think about a life of unmet expectations and disappointments. So the celebration is really difficult to come around. But hear this, the Christmas announcement is a call to rejoice. And here's what I mean. For wherever you are in all of that, The scriptures in 2 Corinthians 6, because of Jesus, make room for our hearts to be sorrowful yet rejoicing. That's actually a category in the Bible of of a heart condition, right? You're sorrowful yet rejoicing. So it doesn't mean just put away your tears, put away your pain. No, you go, I see all of that, but I also see Jesus, which means it won't always be that way. And here's what I mean. The announcement of his first coming, the first advent, points forward to the promise of his second advent. It points forward to the promise, he's coming again, right? So all of our sorrows, all of our fears, all of our tears will one day be swallowed up in his presence. And he will turn all of our mourning into dancing. He will do it. And so Christmas is a call to rejoice because it means that God sees you, he knows you, and he sent his son for you. You're not forgotten by God. You're not. But also Christmas is a time to celebrate because it means that God keeps his promises to heal. He absolutely keeps his promises. We think about the the first advent where people had long expectation. Will God deliver on this promise to send us a Messiah? Will God deliver on this promise to send us a Messiah? And then he delivered. The first advent gives us hope that now we look to the second advent and he will deliver again. God will deliver again. He always keeps his promises to heal. And so you rejoice, maybe sorrowfully, but sorrowful yet rejoicing. So you repent, you rejoice. The third thing, the final thing this morning is pursue justice. Pursue justice. This birth announcement from Jesus means that God entered into the wreckage of our world to push back darkness that through his son bring redemption, restoration, and hope. 
And those of us who are his people, this means that we ought to be the kind of people who with our lives bring the same kind of things to the voiceless, the poor, and the marginalized all around us. It absolutely means that. The fact that Jesus has come into this world is an invitation to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Because God entered into your mess, because God entered into your poverty, because God entered into your voicelessness, now we enter into that same thing in the world around us because we're saying this is who God is. The birth of Jesus means that we don't only have something to declare, we're doing that today, but it means as we leave these doors, we have something to demonstrate to the world around us about what God is like. And so here's a question I would just ask you this morning. Who are the poor, the marginalized, and the voiceless around you? Do you know who they are? Are you willing to step into their pain? Are you willing to step in and help? Are you willing to step in and to serve? And as I say that, if you're having a hard time identifying who that could be, here's my encouragement to you. As we finish up the service today, there's going to be some pastors at the front of the stage that I would love for you to come in and talk with one of us today. We'll connect you to our 405 center and we'll show you how, how you can serve our city, how you can step into the, to the void of those who are poor, marginalized, and voiceless all around us in, in ways you can actually bring this good news, this birth announcement of Jesus to life for some who may not see it otherwise. You see, this morning we're receiving and we're rehearsing the fact that God has announced his son has come to us. We're rehearsing this. We're receiving this. He's a holy king. He's a forever king. He's the son of God. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son. And his name will be called Jesus. And he will be great. He will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. No end. 